today's scripture reading is Ephesians 6, 1 through 9. If you would, open your Bible or follow along on the screen. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we continue our study right through the book of Ephesians. And this morning, yet again, we come across another challenging section in this book. I've been saying as we've been going through what we've been calling the Spirit-filled home, that much of this section is challenging, not because the words are difficult to understand what they mean, or the sentences are hard to diagram, or any of that. Uh, it's challenging because the subject matter is challenging. We've looked at the relationship between husbands and wives. Last week, we looked at the relationship between children and parents. And this week, Paul addresses the relationship between the Christian slave and Christian masters. And this is particularly difficult for us because as a nation, we have a history with this idea of slavery. And so, for, for most American Christians, we hit a passage like this, and we immediately want to jump in our minds to the American experience, and we sort of hit a passage like this, and we say, wait, what? What exactly does the New Testament teach about slavery? Hold on a second. Paul's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Why didn't he boldly condemn slavery in his teaching? He could have. We should agree with that. He could have. Why didn't he? And these are important questions. And, and there's a good bit of misunderstanding in some of our interaction here and our interaction with American slavery and first century slavery. But before we jump in there, because that is some background work we have to do, I want to make sure that we're understanding this in the context of the book as a whole. See, as we go through Ephesians, we've been saying all along, we've got to make sure we understand how each section fits the greater argument because these books were meant, they were written to be read from the beginning to the end. And so, you might recall that the first three chapters are all about the gospel. The first three chapters are all about what God has done for sinners like us in Christ, how, how we deserved His wrath because of our sin, our rebellion, and yet God in His kindness sent His Son Jesus 
And right here at the top, let me just pause and say, if you're not yet trusting in Christ, this is the most important thing I'm going to tell you all morning. Every, everything else flows from this. Every single one of us in this room We're born sinners. We've all rebelled against God. We all deserve God's righteous judgment. And yet God in his grace, God in his mercy, sent his son Jesus. Jesus accomplished everything he was sent to do. He went to the cross, and on the cross he bore the wrath of God for those who would believe. And so I would just say to you, if you're here and you've not yet trusted in Christ, look to Jesus Look to Christ. Talk to somebody here in the church. We'd love to talk to you more about this. Everything flows from this. As we follow Ephesians 1 through 3, we see things like we're chosen from before the foundation of the world. Those who come to believe in Christ were predestined to adoption as sons. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit so that we could make it to the end. And, and, and all of this, Paul then comes along in chapters 4 through 6, and he says, therefore... Therefore, because God has done all of this, you live accordingly. Because you already are a new creation in Christ, this then is how you live. And he's been telling us things like we must work hard to maintain unity within the church. Of course, unity in the family is a vital part of unity in the church, right? He's told us we're to stop thinking and living like unbelievers, so much of what he's been teaching is countercultural. He's saying there's a different way that we think as Christians. We are to walk in love. We are to live our lives in an atmosphere of love, with a light kind of love that Jesus has shown us. He says we're to watch carefully, in fact, how we live. We're not to live as a fool but we're to live as those who are wise. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, thus controlled by the Spirit. And here we just need to remember, he's been pushing us in countercultural directions ever since the word therefore at the beginning of chapter 4. For the Christian, to live according to the calling to which we've been called is to live counterculturally. We don't think and act like unbelievers anymore. Now think about it. The Christian husband is to be far different than the unbelieving husband. In the first century, he would have treated his wife like property. Not so with the Christian husband, Paul said. He's to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The Christian dad is to rule with a heavy hand over his kids in the first century. Not so, Paul says, with the Christian father. Yes, he is to lead, but he's to love. He's to guide. He's to nurture. See, the gospel, what Paul's been getting at is the gospel reorients our thinking in every sphere of our lives. And thus, our text this morning, it's the gospel that is to reorient the thinking of this final category of the household, which is masters and slaves. And by the way, the inclusion of masters and slaves in this section would have been expected by every single person in those first churches in the first century because in the Roman Empire, virtually every single home would have had slaves. So this would have been the expected final piece to Paul's teaching of the Spirit-filled household. So let's pause. Like I said earlier, we need to dig in and do some background work. Because the moment I say the word slaves, and that is the right word, 
It, it ain't servants. The moment that I say the word slaves, some of you immediately want to import slaves from American history, and we just can't do that if we want to understand the New Testament teaching here. And this is why a lot of us carry around an ESV, English Standard Version, and it's why the translators chose the word bondservants, because they didn't want you to import the idea of the American slavery experience. But the word does mean slaves. It, it, it really does. And so, rather than maybe changing the word, we probably just need to understand the background. And so, I want to get into that a bit. To begin with, you need to know that first century slavery was quite different from the American and British experience, and that first century slavery was not ethnicity-based. In, in, in American and British slavery, black Africans were considered by many to be less than human. Horrifically, many argued that those with black skin didn't even bear the full image of God, and thus it was perfectly legitimate to make them slaves. For many in the day, if you were black, you were born to be a slave. And of course, this thinking is rightly horrifying to Christians who understand that all people, regardless of skin color, are made in the image of God, and that no one ethnicity is more pleasing to God than any other, given that we know that people from every single tribe, nation, and tongue will be gathered around His throne for all eternity worshiping. In Colossians, the letter most clearly related to Ephesians, Paul says that in Christ there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. But in American and British colonization, people of black skin were captured. Now, this is a little convoluted because sometimes they were captured by other people of black skin, but they were captured, they were forced into slavery based on ethnicity. They captured them, they shipped them overseas, they sold them like animals, all based on ethnicity. In the first century, while it was still slavery, it was different. Slaves crossed class lines. They crossed ethnicity lines. There were slaves of various colors coming from virtually every single region or country within the Roman Empire. The slaves were often acquired through military defeat. Some were born into slavery, and people could come into slavery for economic reasons. See, see there was no declaring of bankruptcy in the first century. So, for example, if Felix wants to go borrow some money from Fortunatus and try to start a company, and yet the company flops, he couldn't go declare chapter 11. Instead, this is what he would do. He would, he would sell himself back to Fortunatus. He would sell himself and probably his family into slavery with the hopes of working his way out or having a family member or friend come and buy his way out. There, there was a wide spectrum of jobs for first century slaves. Some of those that were prisoners of war had the worst, and, and, and they would work in the mines and things like that, and quite frankly, it was a pretty brutal life. Many slaves, however, were paid for their service. Many were well-educated. Many, many served in rather encouraging positions like doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, artists. And as odd as it might sound, many of these slaves owned their own slaves. In many cases, a first-century slave could save up enough money from their work as a slave and buy their own freedom. And here's what would be shocking to us, because again, our picture of slavery is so much different. 
It's well documented that many of these slaves who became what the New Testament calls a freedman, one who's no longer a slave, they would actually choose of their own volition to continue to work for the one who was previously their master and often even adopt that family name on their own accord. Now, don't get me wrong. We can err in going too far in painting the contrast And so I want to warn us, don't glamorize the picture of first century slavery because it was, in fact, still slavery. I have heard some Christian teachers say, no, they're just servants and workers. But that is not true. It's not. They were slaves. They were owned by their masters. They were property, and they could be beaten legally. They could be put to death by their own masters for things like trying to run away or whatever else, which is why you find the New Testament writers consistently exhorting Christian slave owners in a very countercultural way, saying, don't mistreat them. By the way, this slavery was so common that historians say no other society in the history of the world, was as dependent upon their slavery as the Roman Empire. And thus, the Roman Empire fought vehemently to protect slavery. Listen, to speak out against slavery was to speak a word directly against Rome, and thus you could find yourself hanging on a Roman cross for doing so. See, slaves made up a large portion of the population in the Roman Empire. Now, studies vary on exactly the percentages, but most of those that I've seen put cities like Ephesus or Colossae as somewhere around a third of the people in those cities being slaves. This is the context Paul's writing in. He understood full well that virtually every single house church he was writing to, every single family that made up each house church had slaves. And now you can see why. We call this sermon part four of the Spirit-Filled Home because we see that he's still teaching on how the gospel reorients the thinking within the house, right? Just like it did with the husband and wife, just like it does with the parent and child, the gospel reorients the thinking on the slave and master. There's a lot more we could say by way of backgrounds, but I wanted to get us to the text because we'll continue to hit questions as we go. So with that background in mind, look at Paul's exhortation to Christian slaves and Christian masters. We'll begin with verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants, slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Following the pattern of husbands and wives, children and parents, he starts with subordinate and works his way up. He says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, insincerity of heart as to Christ. Now, there's an important play on words in the text that would be patently obvious to the Greek reader that that we miss because of some English translation decisions. Now, Paul uses the exact same word throughout this section for masters. 
The word is Lord, the same word kurios that we use for the Lord Jesus. Uh, The translators try to bring this out down in verse 9. If you look down there, it's really the only place you see it where in both instances they translate master. But again, it's Lord in both places. In other words, Paul is making the point to both the slave and the slave master that Jesus is the ultimate master. Jesus is finally Lord, and it is to him that ultimate allegiance is due by both slave and slave owner. And thus here he says, slaves, be obedient to your earthly masters, your earthly lords. And note his reason at the end of verse 7. It is because ultimately you fear the Lord, and we've been seeing this all the way through this section. Obey your earthly masters because ultimately you fear your heavenly master, the Lord Jesus. And he, he leans in on how they should obey, saying with, with fear and sincerity. And this idea of fear takes us again back to verse 21, right? That category heading for this whole section. Submitting one to the other, one category to the other, all in the fear of Christ. Here then, slaves are to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling. And this link, again, reminds us that we're to be faithful in the various stations God has called us to, first and foremost, out of our fear, out of our reverence for Christ. And Paul's been showing us this controls everything. A slave who doesn't fear the Lord might be inclined to look at his master and say, what a jerk. I ain't obeying that guy. I'm going to do whatever I could and well please, at least when he's not looking. But see, Paul's saying, as a result of your fear of the Lord, as a result of your reverence for Jesus, your heavenly master, obey your earthly master with a like kind of reverence. Just like we saw at the end of the section on wives, he did the same thing there. What's more, there's a sincerity of heart Paul's calling slaves to. And this sincerity of heart is a single-minded focus. And again, the focus is to please Christ. Paul elsewhere says, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, that includes your work as a slave, doesn't it? Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of Christ. This leads seamlessly into the fact that they're to do this, not to please man, but to please God. Christians, yes, even Christian slaves. And by the way, this is helpful. This this should be showing us this isn't only when you have your dream job or when everything's going your way. Christians don't ultimately finally live to please people. No, for the Christians, our lives, whatever station in life God has called us to, our lives are to please Christ. See, many slaves, like many workers in your office, would sort of dork around on the job until the big guy's coming and then snap to it. And Paul's saying that behavior it is not behavior becoming of the Christian. As Christians, we live for an audience of one. We want to please Jesus, which means we live the same way. People are watching and when they're not. And this idea is driven home in verse 8 when he grounds it in our eternal reward. That's what he's getting at when he says he will receive from the Lord. Clinton Arnold says it like this in his commentary. He says, quote, Paul's trying to give believing slaves an eschatological perspective on their present condition. Although they may face arduous days of difficult work and be asked to do thankless tasks that no one would ever want to do, the Lord notices all they do, and they can be assured of future 
reward, end quote. Remember, all the way back in Ephesians 1, Paul's already told all believers, so that would include the slaves, that we have a glorious inheritance coming. He even prays for them, for all of us, right? That we would, that we would know, that we would really lay hold of what is that glorious eternal hope we have waiting for us. Here then he, he takes us back to that idea. Only this time he's speaking specifically to slaves. And this is actually pretty wonderful if you think about what's going on here. Because slaves in the Greco-Roman world had no shot at any sort of earthly inheritance. And yet Paul wants to help them to see that while they have no shot at an earthly inheritance, they, like all Christians, have something far better to look forward to, better than any earthly inheritance. They have an eternal inheritance that can never perish, never fade away, kept in heaven for them. And see, it's this eternal perspective he's putting before slaves. He's saying no matter what, no matter how bad things are, if you're in Christ, you've got a north star to move toward because you've got that eternal reward coming. And he's saying like he says to all of us, focus, dear Christian, on this. In Romans 8, describing the same reward, the same eternal inheritance, the inheritance of every single Christian, Paul says that if we're children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And then he says, and I don't think we believe this sometimes, he says, for I consider that the sufferings, in context there, that is the sufferings of living in a fallen world, so all suffering, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And this is consistent New Testament teaching, church, regardless of our position in life. Our perspective must be an eternal one. And it's an understanding of, of what we have in store for us that can make anything we might be called to go through, including slavery, including cancer, including hardship, including trials, this perspective can make all of these things manageable. Didn't say easy. Manageable. We can press on because we know what we have in store for us. And see here, Paul is exhorting even the slave, focus on Christ. Focus on your eternal inheritance. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, if you can get your freedom, great, do, do it. Why would you not? But his emphasis even there is lay hold of Christ. Live for Him with your eye on your inheritance. Nothing's more important than this. Here then he commands the Christian slave, serve the Lord and in so doing, keep your eye fixed on eternity. There is indeed a reward coming for those who have served Christ. For those who have done their own thing, he says, the Lord will pay them back. For God is not a God of partiality. Those who have served Him, whatever station in life God had them, will inherit a glorious inheritance. This then leads to Paul's command to slave masters. Look back at the text, verse 9. He says, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, 
and that there is no partiality with him. Here Paul says, in effect, masters, did you, did you hear what I just said to the slaves? If you did, you're probably saying, yeah, get them, Paul. Tell them to you know, straighten up and do their job. But it's your turn, masters. Listen up. You, no matter who you think you are, are to have the same mindset I just called your slaves to have. You too are called to live in the fear of Christ. You too are called to do all you do as unto the Lord. And these slaves have been created in the image of God. Some of them are even your brothers and sisters in Christ, people for whom Jesus died, and you're to treat them accordingly. And again, there's that play on words I spoke of earlier. Masters, lords, treat your slaves well because you know that you too have a master, Lord, in heaven. See, everything is changed in light of Christ. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that the slave is the Lord's freedman, and those who are free are the Lord's slaves. And it's this new gospel-centered way of thinking that Paul's calling for here. The slave owner might well be wealthy and powerful. He might be a town leader or whatever. And yet Paul's reminding him, you're actually a slave of Christ. Which, by the way, remember, that's one of Paul's favorite terms for himself. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's the same word. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. He's saying to these slave owners, you are a slave of Christ. So treat your slaves well because you are not your own master. In fact, you both have the same master. And your master is the Lord Jesus Christ, who commanded you, love one another as I have loved you. I mean, you can see how this teaching eventually leads to the slave owner to just free his slaves. And Jesus, Jesus loved me by laying down his life for me. He's my master in heaven, and I'm to handle my Christian slaves in light of my master in heaven who's called me to love to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, jump back a few verses. All Christians, including the slave owner, is reminded, remember, put off, put on? He's reminded to put on love. The garment he's to put on, the new creation in Christ is love. Put on love. Put on compassion. Put on kindness. Put on gentleness. Put on patience. Put on humility. Thus, no surprise that Paul says, and give up your threatening. That's not done here, he says. Remember, in the ancient world, this is countercultural. The slave was property. Slave masters could legally beat and kill their slaves. And Paul says, no such thing within the spirit-filled home. As you're filled with the spirit, you're not to be harsh. You're not to be threatening. You're to treat them like brothers and sisters in Christ. Because after all, you both have the same master. And I want to turn the corner here and spend a little more time than we typically do on application. Because I think there's some really helpful application that flows from this text. At first pass, we might think, well, there's not much here for us. Because none of us own slaves. Or, or, or perhaps you think our primary application is to sort of jump all the way immediately to bosses and employees. And while I do think there's some application there, and I'll hit on that briefly... It's not where I want to spend the majority of our time thinking about this text. To begin with, I want to go back to the question I introduced earlier, which is the critique some make 
and then make uninformed accusations against the Scriptures in accordance with their critique. Now, the question is, why didn't Paul or any of the other New Testament writers speak out or condemn slavery? There's a lot we could say here. Some actually try to say that Paul endorsed slavery, but I I don't think that's a good argument. If we had time, I could go through and show you how differently, for example, he treats marriage and family and slavery. In marriage and family, he takes it all the way back to creation. Even our very roles within the marriage, he grounds them in creation as something created by God and something that was good all the way from the very beginning. Not so with slavery. Slavery is a product of the fall. And while Paul fully endorses marriage and gender roles, he simply speaks to govern slavery. So, so that's different. That's very different. Still some say, okay, fine. But why didn't he become a good social activist and just hammer against this horrific thing? And we have to be honest. We don't know the exact answer. Paul didn't call me and tell me or anything like that. But, but I will tell you, that's the kind of question, you know, thrown about from the comfort of an American easy chair. I I have good friends. We actually have gospel partners serving in some hard places who are strongly opposed to some of the laws of the land in which they live, but they know they have to be careful on what they say so that their church doesn't get shut down. People don't think about the fact that Paul could have chosen to rail against slavery. He could have made that choice, and he would have probably been immediately nailed to a Roman cross, choosing that hill to die on, and that would have been the end of that, right? Probably less letters, less churches, less gospel spreading all the way through the Roman Empire, which leads to the main reason I think he didn't openly condemn slavery, and that's because Paul was fighting a bigger battle. Perhaps he understood if he won the primary battle, slavery and other social ills could topple in the end anyway. See, Paul wasn't the social activist like a lot of people in American Christianity, In fact, I'm afraid that there's a lot of camps within American Christianity that would be very disappointed in Paul for the way he didn't go after some of the social ills of the first century that, by the way, are worse than they are today. But see, the fact is, read the texts over and over again. Paul is fighting for something bigger. Paul's fighting for something far more important. Paul was fighting for the heart Paul was fighting for the gospel. Paul was fighting for biblical conversion. His aim was to preach the gospel to both Jew and Gentile so that they could come to saving faith and then allow the entailments of the gospel to work themselves out in their lives. Like Jesus, Paul did not suffer from even a hint of mission confusion. Paul's mission was to follow the Great Commission, and it was to preach the gospel and then to help believers understand how to live out the Scriptures. His mission was not to rail against every social issue that was contrary to the gospel, which the end of the day, would have probably not changed anything. But if he, he, he knew if he preached the gospel faithfully and the Lord was gracious to some of his hearers and they were converted and then they understood their mission and they were faithful and others were converted, think about it. Now you have the Christian new way of thinking working its way out all over the Roman Empire in every station of life and now the entailments of the gospel are being worked out and then perhaps things like slavery and abortion and human trafficking and the, you know, gladiators and all of that, maybe then that starts falling apart, which did happen to some degree 
in the ancient world. And herein lies, I think, a very important part of our application, and that is, I think Paul's showing us the way forward when it comes to dealing with the social issues of the day, namely this, the primary way, didn't say the only way, the primary way Christians will affect real change on culture is from the inside out, not the outside in. And this is important because as I look around, a lot of the work being done in the American church is outside-in kind of work, all the while leaving out the ever-important inside-out kind of work. You might think in terms of the root and the fruit. Are the various social issues we want to fight over, are they root issues or are they fruit issues? And, and, and if they're fruit issues, might it be that we fight against this one and that one, battle here, battle there, maybe we win a battle here or battle there, and it pops up in different places or in different ways or at later times. But, but if we fight at the level of the root, which is sin, and the need for true redemption in Christ, then perhaps we see real and lasting change. Now, let me lean in on this with what Paul modeled for us. Here I want to connect a few dots that I think we often gloss over, but when we connect them, I think we actually see that Paul's very clear on this inside-out approach to changing culture. Virtually all scholars agree that Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon are, are intimately related. Paul travels with this guy named Tychicus and this guy Onesimus, and he sends Onesimus to deliver Colossians. He might have even been one of the carriers of Ephesians. We're not 100% sure on that. Regardless on that front, consider Colossians and Philemon. Consider that connection for a minute. Remember, said earlier, these letters were written to be read all the way through. That's what would happen. Letters delivered, gather the church, read the letter. You know, Ephesians 1.1 down to the end. Colossians 1.1 down to the end. Colossians was written to a group of Christians meeting in Colossae, right? The church at Colossae. And when we put our New Testament together, as we should, the book of Philemon, which again is very closely related to Colossians, and that little letter helps us to see that the Colossian church meets in the home of this guy named Philemon. And do you know who carried the letter of Colossians to the Colossian church meeting in the home of Philemon? I already said, Colossians 4 verse 9 tells us it's this guy Onesimus. And if you read the book of Philemon, which perhaps you've ignored because of its brevity, but if you read that, you know that the whole book is how this guy Philemon should welcome this guy Onesimus back into his household because what was he? He's a runaway slave. Remember, runaway slaves could be beaten, even put to death. And Paul exhorts Philemon not only to welcome him back as a slave, but more than a slave, welcome him back as a beloved brother in Christ. See, we don't know all of the details, but in the providence of God, Onesimus runs away from Philemon. Uh, Philemon's a man Paul knows well, probably evangelized, because at one point Paul says, you owe me your very life. Somehow Onesimus, Philemon's slave, runs away. He finds and meets up with Paul. Paul leads him to faith in Christ. They start serving together, and Onesimus becomes a very important traveling companion of Paul's, ministering to him in his imprisonment. And now as Paul's teaching Onesimus, he's discipling Onesimus, and what a Christ-honoring life looks like, he says something along the lines of, look, running away was not Christ-honoring obedience. You should go back. And this is where I think it's so helpful. 
while Paul didn't rail against slavery as an institution, again, I think it would have been a waste of time. I think it would have been mission confusion. It would have put him on a Roman cross. So while he didn't do that, the whole institution, if you think about this, begins to unravel, at least in the home churches, when rightly understood, the inspired letter to Philemon is all about this relationship, right? Go, go, go back and read Philemon when you have time, maybe this afternoon. Now, just a quick summary. Paul says, Philemon, I'm sending this guy back to you, right? I'm sending Onesimus back. He was worthless to you as a runaway, but now he's of great value to us both as I begat him. He's saying, I led him to Christ. He says, now I'm sending him back, listen to his language, as though I'm sending you my very heart. He says, I would have liked to have kept him with me because he's such a dear traveling companion, but this is the right thing to do because he ran away from you. Welcome him, Philemon, and not only welcome him back as a member of your household, he says, welcome him as a beloved brother. He says, receive him, Philemon, just as you'd receive me. If he owes you anything, charge it to my account. And by the way, don't forget, you owe me your very life. And oh yeah, isn't this great? I'm coming to visit in a little while. Just going to see how things are going. I mean, you can only imagine, right, with this context, how this must have gone. All of a sudden, Onesimus shows up on this guy's doorstep, Philemon's doorstep, the very one he ran away from. But, but, but he's there with Tychicus. You know, he opens his door and he's like, what are you doing here? But Tychicus is standing there, one of Paul's traveling companions, and they make it clear, hey, we got some letters from Paul. And thus they read Colossians out loud. No doubt with Onesimus and Philemon in the room, and everybody knows the situation. And together they're going through, you know, Colossians is like Ephesians. It starts with good theology and goes into practical implications. So they start with the good theology of Christ. They're all reminded as a church that Jesus is ultimately supreme over all things. He's the head of the church not the pastor, not the leader, not the wealthy, whatever. Jesus is the head of the church. It's Jesus who's ultimately Lord. And then he turns the corner, just like he does in Ephesians, to the household codes, and he exhorts both of them right there in front of the whole church. Paul sees Philemon converted and then sees Onesimus converted. He tells Onesimus in that letter, honor Christ, serve Philemon by doing your work ultimately for Jesus himself. In other words, he's exhorting him, be the kind of slave anybody would love to have because you work so hard, you're conscientious, you're faithful, you're honest. On the other hand, he leans in on Philemon, treat Onesimus like a beloved brother. Treat him like you'd treat me, Philemon. That doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that it's not going to be that long before Onesimus is not a slave any longer. I mean, this was brilliant. This was brilliant. It's no wonder Christians had such a profound effect on so many of the social ills of the first and second century. It's no wonder that later Christians like William Wilberforce understood the New Testament teachings and fought against British and American slavery. It's an inside-out approach. And I think one takeaway for us is that if we really want to change culture, then we should pray fervently we should spend our time evangelizing and see what God might do. Paul gives us the way forward. And I think surprising to many in Christendom, it's not to rail against the establishment. Throughout his writings, Paul commands slaves, stay where you are. In fact, he commands them, live to the glory of God, to the honor of Christ. Live a life worthy of worship, even as a slave. And don't misunderstand me. You know, this topic, there's pitfalls on every side. I, I'm in no way saying Christians can't or shouldn't 
work in areas of social needs, okay? Let me say that again. I'm in no way saying Christians can't or shouldn't work in areas of social needs. When it comes to the individual Christian, and that's a big distinction I'm making right there, individual Christian, local church. When it comes to the individual Christian, if the Lord puts on your heart to be at work in the area of a particular social need, do it for the glory of Christ. This church supports Denise Kendrick, for example, who works at Embrace, working to help kids who need a home. Hope Women's Center here in McKinney, a wonderful ministry, fights for the unborn. To them we say, yes and amen, serve with gusto. But I think this passage also reminds us that one of our roles as church leaders is to make sure we keep reminding the church we must focus on the main thing. The local church can't get sidetracked on any one person's pet project or else over time that will become what we worship. Our primary role is to preach the gospel, to disciple the saints, and work from the inside out. There's so much more we could talk about on that, but I'm running out of time. Two other related applications. The next one is the one we often go to. And that's that this passage, I think, demonstrates that you can serve and honor Christ in any job. doesn't matter how stinky it is or whatever. This passage is not about that first and foremost. I just want to say, far too often in preaching, we just make that leap. And you've got to be clear what we covered already. This is about slavery and masters. That being said, I do think this passage helps us and gives us principles for living in any station of life, right? That's really what this is getting at. In other words, if a slave can serve Christ, if a Christian slave can follow the principles given here, we can too, no matter how much I like or don't like my boss. And that's all I'll say on that. You can work out a hundred different implications, I'm sure. Finally, I want to land here. This passage calls us, like so many other passages in the New Testament, to long for our final reward. Note Paul's teaching to slaves. They might not have the most respected station in life, you know, but he says good things are coming. This world is not our final home. We got to remember that. We're just a passing through. James 1, 9 through 10 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The point is that the lowly should rejoice that because the work of Christ, because of the gospel, it won't always be this way. And the rich, which by the way, that's all of us in this room, the rich must not let this go to our head. We must remember that while rich, while free, we are, in fact, slaves of Christ. Tom Schreiner, in his Theology of Paul, says, quote, In Paul's mind, one's social standing or class was rather insignificant. The present age is temporary and will soon pass away, and thus whether one is a slave or free is of little importance. In Luke 6.20, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus also tells us it's harder for a rich man to enter into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, Paul says, God takes the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Over and over again, the Bible's trying to change our perspective on this life and the life to come. I think the question is, are we listening? We know this life is not all there is, but do we? Right? 
We know this world's not ultimately our home. But boy, so often we are white-knuckling it, aren't we? See, passages like this remind us whether you have a hard life right now, whether you're walking through a hard time, whether things are going well, this isn't it. We want to look forward to, long for that great day when Jesus comes again and we'll be with him for all eternity in our eternal home. So let's pray to that end. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would continue to give us an eternal perspective as we consider the life he's called us to live. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, even texts that at first pass seem like a challenge to us, Lord. We thankful that we live in a time where, Lord, we don't have slaves. Lord, I'm preaching to brothers and sisters that don't have slaves in their home. And yet, Lord, we also see your goodness and your wisdom in these verses. Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help us to live our lives, not as man-pleasers, but for an audience of one, help us to live our lives to make much of Jesus every day in all we do for your glory, for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.